Welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Daniel 1, we have found that uh, we have four young men that have been taken to Babylon for for re-education, for lack of a better word. And, you know, we've been told that this captivity for them is really part of God's plan for their life. And so many times we go through tough situations in our own life and we say, man, the the devil is just attacking me. You need to pray for me. It's the devil. And I I honestly wonder if it is always the devil attacking us. You know, I wonder if if some of the most stressful and hard and difficult things that we go through, even some of the things that that we would, you know, often describe as awful or hellish, uh, are actually a part of God's plan for for our our lives. And it's kind of a conundrum on that. Uh, So really what I'm telling you is sometimes, you know, bad things do happen to good people. And these four boys are four good kids. And we're really impressed with them already in, in chapter, uh, chapter 1, what they've done. And, you know, they've been brought into an evil bondage, uh, you know, within the will of God for, for Judah and, and for their lives. So this captivity is not even really about themselves. They're experiencing a punishment of God on their whole nation. But these kind of these kind of things that happen in our lives can cause confusion for us sometimes, or even you know sometimes cause us to to shake our fist at God, or or even you know doubt the existence of God or doubt the power of God. And, and for some people, it will cause them to withdraw, and another person would go, uh, cause them to go out and party and 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 sin and 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 just go that route, just because we're kind of get off balance or confused. Just because the thought of God allowing these things to happen. I mean, these four young men did nothing to deserve to be taken off to Babylon. So it's very valuable for us to see, to find a book like this. The very first chapter we see some really good people are just buried by a really difficult thing in life. So our four boys, are, they're taken into captivity. And, and it's a weird captivity because it's a friendly captivity. It's nice when it's an enemy and you go, okay, they're holding me captive. You can pinpoint it and say it was, it's their fault. They're the ones that are wrong. But, but this, this friendly captivity. So you kind of, you don't know who's really your friend, who's not your friend. They're pretending to be friends. They're pretending to get along. It's, it's a little more complicated than an unfriendly one. You know, it's, it's, it would have been much easier for these boys if they were like in a rat infested, you know, uh, cell. Uh, and really the word easier is not true. It's more like the word simpler. It would have been simpler because, because they could say, that is my enemy. You know, we're trying to communicate any way we can. We're writing notes back and forth. That's an easy way to do it. It would be much simpler because they could instantly recognize the enemy. But here, you're not quite sure who your enemy is. In the most deceptive room, they're sitting at the, the king's table in the most deceptive room in the kingdom. That's where they are. And they're there in the extravagance of the king. The king that's into overindulgence. And everything is being freely, freely offered to them. 
I mean, in one sense, the world's point of view, they're sitting there going, man, these guys are high on the hog in a sense. These guys are getting everything. Anything they ask for, they can have. They're sitting at the king's table. If you just cooperate with the system, then you can have it all. Now, in chapter 1, it's a friendly captivity. In chapter 2, when we get to verses 18 or 19, it's not going to be so friendly anymore. You know, after that, it, you know, it just, you know, friendly captivities always or eventually, you know, kind of show their ugly faces in the end. And Babylon is an extremely ugly place as God defines ugly. Now, certain things have been handed our boys right at the beginning, during almost like freshman orientation, if you want to call it that. They've been given a new way of thinking in Babylon, you know, about their sexuality. They've been given new Babylonian, you know, identities. They've been, you know, given new curriculum. And this is, you know, curriculum is so different than anything they've ever seen. It's not just, oh, a new way of teaching math. They've never seen math before, in a sense, this type of curriculum that they're going to be going through. You know, they're given new gods uh, with a little g, okay? I'm not putting them on the same level as God, but they're presented saying, these, you know, this statue right here, this is your new god. Pray to it. They're given all of this stuff. And, you know, in this atmosphere, you know, they're given new diets. And these boys immediately choose what battles they want to fight. Because you just can't fight every battle. And you guys uh, know this as well as, I, uh, as well as I do. You don't fight every battle. Because if you do, you just end up, you know, you're struggling all the time. These guys decide which battles, you know. Our boys not only learn the, the typical stuff, in school. But they also go into advanced courses of science, mathematics, architecture, geometry, astrology, astronomy, dream interpretation, divination. These are these are the Chaldean or the Babylonian, you know, magi in training. As a magi in training, they would they would learn how to tell the future by interpreting flight patterns of birds. So literally, they go on field trips or even a, or maybe a controlled environment, and they would watch these birds and they would tell the professor, "Okay, well, when they went left, it meant this, or when they went right, it meant that." This is the kind of training that they were in. They became proficient in astrology by being taught in the very schools that invented the zodiac. We all know what the zodiac is. What are you? Well, I, I'm a Scorpio. You know, I mean, immediately you could say what you are because that's what the world presents. They would have labs uh, to tell you how to, uh, you know, learn meanings from unusual birth defects. And in fact, here's a, here's a, clay, um, a clay sheep liver that was used as a training device. This is from that time period that they would literally train these guys. It's all divided up in quadrants, and if you had a scar or, or a blemish in one quadrant, you'd be able to tell them, oh, this is what your future is. So they would slaughter the, 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 the sheep, and the, they would take out the liver, and they would hold it up, and they would look at it, and they go, oh, yeah, quadrant number you know, 26. You know, oh, it means this. This is the kind of stuff that they dug up in Babylon, and they, they, they were a part of. This is some of the things that they would you know, learn. These boys would also learn to, you know, which trinket to wear on which days in order to ward off evil spirits and bring good fortune. They would know how to, you know, they would learn and know how to interpret dreams and patterns of, of you know, oil dropped on, on a wet surface. And we say, man, wow, that's, that's so different than 2010. Well, it's not really that different. Have you ever been up to Santa Cruz? 
This stuff is going on today in Santa Cruz. Maybe not the sheep slaughtering, but all this other stuff. And we think, oh, well, that's, that's like 200 miles away. I'm glad we're 200 miles away. You know, I don't have to really deal with that. Doesn't affect us. Well, do you have a friend or maybe even you that checks their horoscope every day? Then you're practicing the same thing. Anything based upon your birthday that, that, that's written up like that or alignment of the stars or, or you know, anything we, uh, you know, we see this, you know, and they see this telling something or, or anything based on their own personality. Well, my personality, da 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 Well, Scorpio should be, you know, coupled with a Pisces. You know, all that kind of stuff or anything of that regard. Anyone who's ever had a palm read or, or had a friend who had a palm read, this is exactly what we're talking about, a tarot card reading. You know, we were trying to sell our house up in the Bay Area, and it was right when the market was fixing a tank, and you could kind of almost tell, and people were really afraid. And they're like, well, if you go get this certain statue, and you bear it in your yard, and you turn it a certain direction, man, it'll sell like that. And I'm thinking, they're wacko, but they go to my church. Okay? So we understand. It's not 200 miles away. It is right in front of it. I hope they don't listen to this. on. <laughs> If you know one, know someone who, who wears certain charms or trinket, trinket, trinkets or bracelets or, you know, the whole, you know, birthstones or, you know, stones that, you know, bring them certain kind of fortune or power, then they and you are living in Babylon. So I want you to get a sense of, yes, this was a long time ago, but Babylon is here for us today. Babylon is alive and well in 2010. It's centered usually around highly educated people mixed with dark spiritual arts. Now back uh, to, to 605 B.C., where the greatest challenge for these boys, you know, what they faced is, is not uh, the sheep liver and the drops of oil on the ground. But they are sitting in these classes and they're excelling. The greatest challenge that they face would be to not lose their spiritual compass, to not lose that. That somehow all pool, you know, all that pools, you know, the pools of Babylon, all that stuff that just drag us through this, would pull that compass in a direction in ways that it should not be. That they would lose the grounding that they had back in Judea, where Dad named them, God is my judge, or who compares, or who is like my God, or God, or my God is gracious to me, or my God will protect me. And we need to remind ourselves. That Judea wasn't always so spiritual either. And that's why they were, you know, here. They're, they're here for 70 years in captivity. And this ends with the book of Esther. For those that connect the two books. That 70 years will end when the book of Esther is, you know, that whole story that goes on. Because God is punishing His people for what? For worshiping Canaanite gods. To worshiping the other gods that are out there. So our boys went from a relatively innocent version of Babylon, one that's not too bad to go into San Francisco. Yeah, so any of you guys been up there? You know what? I, we lived out there for like 17 years in that area, so I understand. My brother came out to visit, and we went driving, and we happened to be um, in San Francisco on the uh, Pride weekend. Wow. We took the wrong street and was able to see the parade. Oh, get it out of my eyes. You know, yeah, I was... No, I won't go. Well, okay. We were in, um, oh, where was it? Over in Europe somewhere on a mission trip, 
uh, Amsterdam. And our leader of our trip knew the way around the city. Well, he accidentally took a wrong turn and took us down the red light district. Right there in the windows, people. It's alive and well right now. That stuff can pull at our spiritual compass. We already live in Babylon. So when our kids leave for college, so many of us are like, oh no, they're going off to Babylon. Yes, they are, but they were also raised somewhat in Babylon. So let's see if we can do some prep work now with our, you know, with our kids and our children. So when the time comes that they won't lose their compass. Now you'll also remember in chapter 1, our boys took a, took a dietary stand. They were allowed to remain at the king's table, but they said, you know what, we don't want to eat that stuff. It's not kosher for us. And if you know anything about Jews, being kosher is very important. Important enough that, uh, uh, you know, I think I said this the other day where we were eating at one place and you could have beef on one side and dairy on the other side and they had a line down the middle and you couldn't cross over that. Uh, you know, if you wanted to get a dessert, you could go over there, but don't dare come, you know, back. And they had somebody there watching to make sure you didn't do that because I had a lot of non-kosher people around that didn't understand the rules. Kosher is very important for these guys. And they, they took their stand so they wouldn't be morally compromised. And now you'll remember at the end of chapter 1, it says in verse 17, To these four boys, or these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding and all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could, could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered into the king's service. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. And this really is our goal in today's world. Those of us who are, her, uh, I, I include myself in that, you see how I did that? Those of us who are ten talent people, you know, those, uh, those of you that excel in certain things, God wants us to be ten times better at these things. If you're a five talent person, man, he wants you to be five times better. If you're a two talent person, he wants you to be, you to be two times better. He wants us to be better. And that's what I was talking about last week. I kind of walked away last week thinking, man, I was a little harsh because I kind of went through a, a, a you know, some of my notes and, and I was looking at it scenario when I was talking about, you know, don't dare try to, to go and present God, you know, in your work atmosphere if you're the one that's always showing up late. Because they're kind of, you know, so I kind of went on that. Don't, don't present God if you're going to do this. Don't present God. And, you know, really what I'm trying to say is we want to be like Daniel. We want to be a, to a point where, where we're ten times better or five times better or twice as, as better. So that way when we do present God to, the, to others that are around us in our workplace, in our, in our office, in our school or wherever we go, you know, the papers we write, that they go, man, they live what they believe. So therefore, I want to put an ear to that. I want to listen to them a little bit better. In other words, do better than just our best. Now, some of us had parents who said what? You can't do anything right. Now, some of us, the opposite is true. We have parents that would attack, attack anybody around. How dare you tell my child that they're not the best? Both sides of that is wrong. We have to be, you know, we have to be able to live in a way that we say, we encourage them that, that they can fail and we show them where they fail and then we can move them forward and never tell them you can't do anything right. That's just not good. It's not good. 
Because then they start viewing their whole life, I'm no good. And the same thing. If you never allow your child to fail, if you jump on anybody who ever criticizes your child, what happens? That child thinks they can do nothing wrong. I can never do anything wrong. I'm the greatest. And that's not good either. We need to live in a reality to the point where the proverb says, train up in a child in the way that he should go. And the parent knows which way a child should go. And is very aware of, of other adults that help them along in that process. Okay, well now chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and could not sleep. The Hebrew for could not sleep is the word stricken. Like, you know, stricken a bell or strike a bell with a hammer. You know, we have this bell out there and never so often somebody will grab that chain and, and it's fun when somebody else is standing there not expecting it and you just ring the bell and it just, well, this is kind of what, what happened to him. Now, last Monday night, our electricity went off in our house. And I, I guess it was our whole block, you know. And I woke up to this alarm going off. But it wasn't like an alarm like your, your you know, clock alarm, you want to wake up. It was just this, this, this ringing that's going on. And I immediately, I mean, you're talking about being woken up. I immediately start running around the house. I'm thinking fire, because we have fire alarms in our house. I'm thinking, what is going on? And I finally figured out, okay, I'm running around here in the dark. Okay, the lights are off. And I finally figured out, oh, it's just the computer backup. So I've got to figure out how to turn that noise off. It's basically alerting you. Shut down your computer because, you know, I only have so much electricity to turn you off. So as my heart calmed back down and I tried to go back to bed, it took me several hours, you know, or to, to kind of relax back down and go to bed. I should have just got up and did something. But I just laid there thinking, why can't I go to sleep? But this is what's kind of being described here. Something that wakes you up and you just can't go back to sleep. Nebuchadnezzar wakes up and his heart immediately just starts... I mean, it just starts immediately just going. Another way of saying this is that the sleep left him and his sleep was finished. What it means is he couldn't sleep anymore and it was probably for a few days. And of course, a sleep-deprived king is a grumpy king, right? Especially a Babylonian king who believes that dreams mean something. So verse 2, it says, So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. He's getting everybody in. He's not just calling one specialist. He's calling them all. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. That's a good statement to start off with when you're talking to a king. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Now, what's interesting to me is, the book so far has been reading, uh, written in Hebrew. But starting at this verse, it switches to Aramaic and stays there until chapter 7, verse 28. Now, does anybody know why? Well, good, I'm in good company, because I have no idea either. Nebuchadnezzar's native, native tongue is Aramaic, and the Babylonians are speaking to their king in Aramaic, and they're trying to soothe him in Aramaic. Come on, you know, it's us. We can help you. You have the best dream interpreters right here. Just tell us. Now, the king is in a very grumpy mood, so he goes on in verse 5. 
the king replies to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your horses turn into pile, our houses turn into piles of rubber. Bro, trying to be my friend, talking to me in Aramaic, you're going to tell me this. You're going to all be cut up. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Pretty straightforward, huh? Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. They're basically saying that the problem here is that the king, you know, he won't tell them the dream. Come on, king, just just tell us. We're, we're very good at this. This is why we've been trained here. This is why you called us in. We're on your team. So don't cut us into pieces quite yet. It kind of makes you wonder if the, dream, if the king could even remember his dream at all. All he knows is he's woken up. He's stricken awake. Kind of makes you wonder that. Verse 8, it says, Then the king answered, I'm certain that you are trying to gain time. Uh Uh-huh. You're trying to gain time here, guys, because you realize that that is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. So what the king here is doing, he's kind of busting his own system. He just realized that he's on a PC computer and he needs a Mac computer. It just doesn't, it's not computing for him. He just realized that the capability of his kingdom, you know, he's sitting there going, hey, wait a minute. All of this is just so you guys, you know, how would you know if what I, what you say to me is true? How would I know that it's true? You could just make it up. So tell me the dream also. It's like, He's sitting here in the middle of the night going, coming to an epiphany. I mean, he's just going, man, I've been wasting my money with these guys. They've been making it up all along. You know, and this is just kind of the, the politics side of the things in the palace. Verse 10, it goes on, it says, The astrologers answered the king, There is no man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however, great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among man. I would put in there, yet, as Jesus came. Basically, they're saying, you know what? If we can't do it, no one can. Only God can do this. Now, for baseball fans, this is like the nice, slow, fat pitch right down the middle for football fans, this is like, you know, the wide receivers open in the end zone and all you got to do is throw the ball. And if you're not a sports fan, I'm sorry, I don't have an analogy for you. <laughs> but Daniel's God is going to nail this pitch. He's going to hit it out of the ballpark. In fact, Daniel does this in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, and he does it all without steroids. This God of ours, I mean, I tell you, in verse 12 it says, This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued and put the wise men to, uh, to put the wise men to death. Men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Now remember, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you know, have just been promoted to a certain work team. They're rookies. They've just moved up in the company. 
into the Babylonian wise man department. And this is not a good time. Uh, Not a good time to get promoted at all. Uh, This department has basically had a terrible year, and they're all fixing to get the axe. It says here in verse 14, When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon. Now, in Aramaic, the word guard means to slay. It describes exactly what his job is. He is the executioner. This is the guy that stands in the corner of the room with the, you know, the big axe. And anytime the king says, get him, he gets him. This is not a friendly guy. So Arioch, the chief executioner, comes knocking on Daniel's door. Daniel's inside going, who is it? Arioch, let me in. Um, who? Can you come back later? It's the middle of the night. What kind of man would Arioch be? He is not the most sensitive guy in the room. I'm so sorry about this, Daniel. I, how does this make you feel? No, it's the exact opposite. It's like, Arioch, I'm here to take you to be executed. He's not going to play around. Now, verse 14, it says, what, then Daniel freaked out? Then Daniel jumped out the window? Then Daniel broke down and cried like a little girl? Then Daniel said to his buddies, I knew this wasn't going to work. When you said that we, you know, we needed to excel in this classroom and in all our studies, I said that we should flunk. Remember? We wouldn't be here if we hadn't have done that. This always happens to me. It's because I'm a Sagittarius. Is that what he said? No. In verse 14 it says, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Now, the Living Translation says Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. Another translation says with diplomacy and tact. What amazing young man he is. Here he is having a civil conversation with his executioner, with Arioch. And this conversation is buying him precious time while he's thinking about what he's, do, what he's supposed to do. I mean, his mind's just probably going a million miles per hour here. Here's a 19-year-old boy who has gone through three, three years of basically Hogwarts and somehow has kept his compass. And then I look at myself in the mirror and I go, oh, wow. And the Lord says, I know, Alan, I'm still working on you. Daniel handled the situation with wisdom, discretion, diplomacy and tact and in this case his tact saved his life it saved his three friends life it saved a lot of lives that uh, people that he probably didn't even like and I would dare say that inside I think Daniel was probably freaking out that Arioch is there confronting him in verse 15 he says he asked the king's officer Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Now, what a courageous question, by the way. I mean, this would almost sound like he's criticizing the king. That's worth instant death right there in the Babylonian Empire. Arioch, who somehow likes Daniel. You know, what is it about Daniel that as soon as you have a conversation with him, you like him? There are certain people like this, and man, I wish I was one of them. You know, they just walk in the room, they start talking, everybody's just like, oh, that person's just so great. Daniel is one of those personalities. You just like him. Now, I don't think this, you know, Arioch was one of his buddies. 
I mean, how many conversations did you have with the executioner? Yeah, yeah you kind of stay away from that guy. He's kind of weird. He likes his job, you know. You just kind of, you stay away from him. And yet, here Arioch sits down and gives him the whole story. Verse 16, it says that this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time. Now, I believe he does not know that the Chaldeans have already asked for time. Yet, Daniel, you know, the king could have just totally exploded at his request. But Daniel goes into the king and ask him to give him time, so that he might interpret the dream for him. So he promises the king to interpret the dream, and then he goes home to whom? His small group. Verse 17, it says, Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now what do you notice here? They're still going by their Hebrew names. Apparently they think it's still important for them to do this. So they all get out their dream interpretation manuals, don't they? To help Daniel, you know, cram for the test. Is that what it says? No. It says here in verse 18, He urged them to plead for mercy from, God, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. He simply asked them to pray with him about this. That was his strategy. Well, let's back up for a second. Here are ten things that just kind of clicked off. First off, he didn't panic when I probably would have. He didn't panic. Secondly, he stayed in control of himself when I probably would have. Yeah, okay, he stayed in control. He got the correct, number three, he got the correct facts before reacting. How many times do we react before we even know the true facts? Man. He courageously went toward danger and risked everything. Remember, he was a wanted man and he goes straight into the king's you know, throne room. Where the king literally, if he has a scepter, and if he puts it towards you, you live. If he doesn't put it towards you, the executioner kills you right there. That's what we're talking about here. Fifthly, he went and asked the king for things that had just been denied his peers. Number six, he displays wisdom, discretion, diplomacy, and tact. Number seven, he, brought some, he bought some time by promising a, a correct dream interpretation. And number eight, he went home. And this is crucial. There comes a time in crisis management that you just got to get away. You can't stay right there in that situation. Whether it's, and I'm talking about immediate crisis, right then and there. You know, uh, you know not long term. You just, you know, if you you got to get out of a home for the night. You just got to go stay somewhere else for for one night. You know, or you got to get out and, and and take a walk somewhere. You just need to do something to get out of the immediate problem. Number nine. He found his closest friends, who probably live very close to him. And this is huge, to have people who will help you, to hold you accountable. He is not in spiritual isolation. He's, a wise, you know, he's wise enough to know that you've got to be in some type of small group. You've got to have some type of, of friends that are godly friends. You have to be connected somehow within a small group that's connected to the, the church as a whole. If not, you isolate yourself. And all of a sudden, you're feeling like, man, I, you know, I, I'm really kind of out of it. I, I really don't know what's going on. I haven't been around. Because if you don't show up, you don't know what's going on. 
See, Daniel was in a small group. Four guys who had the same values as him, his peers. It's really important for us to be discipling someone who is not yet uh, mature. And, and that's not a put down. That's just saying, hey, I, I see somebody who, who possibly is younger, sometimes my own age, sometimes a little older than I, that's not as mature as, uh, as they should be. So let me disciple them along the way. Let me help feed them. Let me take them down the correct path. Let me show them some things like how to study. What am I studying? How does God talk to me? Because, I mean, one of the biggest questions is, how, how do I talk to God? I never heard God. Well, let me tell you how God talks to me. And you can bring them along. Because even Jesus says that we should be discipling. So if we're not discipling somebody, we're actually sinning. Now again, you should be discipling. But we also need to have the iron sharpening the iron. Somebody who brings you along. That that you also bring them along. You, You talk about ideas and you go back and forth. And 99% of the time, it needs to be somebody of the same gender because it just doesn't work well with the, with the opposite. You know, to, to a point where you have maybe three or five, you know, people that you don't talk about the weather. But you get serious really quick. So the question would be, do you have anyone in your life right now and I'm not just talking about somebody you like to complain about. I mean, that was last week's, so grab the CD if you're a complainer. But someone where the rubber meets the road, the king is going to kill you. What do you do? You have 24 hours. I will stop chopping people up for 24 hours, but you better produce. If you don't, then start praying. If you don't have somebody like this, start praying for somebody. You know, God, send me a Jonathan to my David. Send me, you know, you know send me that Elijah to Elijah. Send me that her and Aaron to Moses. Send me that that Naomi to Ruth. God, send me someone. Now, different times in my life, I've prayed this this prayer to the Lord. And He has sent people. The Lord has always sent people when I've prayed like this. Now, when I went back to college at 28, and I don't recommend it, finish your college early, but I went back to get my Bible degree, I had a professor named David Beavers. He was in his 60s. We all called him Doc, Doc Beavers. Now, at the time, I was also working on student leadership, and, and then I went on staff when I graduated there. And, and you know, one of my jobs was to spend, spend a lot of time with, with students. So we did that. So I had a lot of this mentoring going on where, where I would mentor the younger generation. It was about 10 years younger than I was. It was, a, it was a good relationship. So a lot of those friends are now getting married and having kids, same time as us. So it's a lot of fun. So I would hang out and play pool with them, but I'd also hang out with Doc Beavers. And we struck up this friendship where, where I could talk with him. And, and one day he started telling me, he, stop calling me Doc, start calling me David. And I knew we'd reached a, a point in our friendship where it went beyond just a, hi, how are you? Oh, the weather's great. It's not too hot today. Let's play some pool. You know, it went beyond that. And we became friends, and I would sit down, and I would challenge him, and he would challenge me, and, and we would talk about different things. And, you know, he made me take my first long-term preaching job. He's like, Alan, you have to do this. And I'm like, I don't know. if I, He's like, you're doing it. I've already called him told him that you're coming. Okay, I guess I am. Now, he was not my favorite teaching professor. In fact, his classes I could not stand. They were full of fluff. But as a man of God, he was solid. Come to find out, he'd been at the college so long 
that he kind of had seen so many students come and go, he never really connected on a level that was a, a friendship, an ironing, sharpening, and iron, even though it was two different ages. We became really good friends, and we'd sit around and talk and, and pray together. We had some of the same interests, teaching the Word of God and going to Hawaii. In fact, I, I need to call him now and tell him Lisa and I have a baby, because uh, one day I needed to go get one of the students out of his class. So I walk into the class and uh, kind of stand in the back, and he, he stops whatever, you know, he kind of finishes his little thought and stuff, and he kind of looks up at me, and he goes, Oh, hey, Alan. And before I could say, um, I need, he goes, Hey, guys, you know, Alan, are you pregnant yet? Do you have your wife pregnant yet? And I'm just like, there's all these 18 and 19-year-olds just like staring at me, and I'm just like turning beet red. I was shocked. So I told him, no, I don't have any kids yet. You know, Lisa's not pregnant yet. And he said to me, well, and he really said to the class, well, I know Alan's not pregnant yet. Lisa and him keep taking people to Hawaii with them. Are you talking about embarrassing? But the point is, it's not about age. It's not about experience. It's about the commonality of God and going deeper. And the willingness to talk about your life, you know, your life with God to others. Our life with God. There have been times in my life where God has provided this. And I think that this really should be our Christian walk. To have godly friends who walk along beside us. Not so we can complain, but so we can positively challenge each other. So if you don't have that, start praying for that. We need to be a church that we reproduce each other in a sense. And I don't mean, oh, let's reproduce leaders, because that's usually what it's centered around. No, let's reproduce good Christians. Let's reproduce each other that are, that are going to be walking in the Spirit. That are going to be Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and, and Azariah. So when we say we want you to get involved in a Bible study or a small group, this is what we're looking for, a place that you, you know, a safe place that you can open up. And it can't always be a group of 40 people. It just doesn't work that way. It's important to, to go beyond the, hi, how are you, on Sundays. You need to spend more time with each other. You know, trouble always comes in our life. I don't know anybody's life who, who, who's never had any trouble. Trouble always comes in our lives. That's just life. You know, the old saying is you're either coming out of a trial, or you're in a trial, or you're preparing for the next trial. And I don't mean to be a kind of a glass-half-empty type of person. So I'm not saying that we should dread it. I'm just saying that that's how life is. And we can either be like Daniel and have a group of people that we depend on and then act with, with wisdom and discretion and diplomacy and tact. Or we can be like Babylon and go cry like a baby, scream bloody murder. This is not fair! Personally, I hope that I'm getting better at the wisdom and discretion, diplomacy, and tact side of things. I don't always get that. Hopefully, you're getting better at the wisdom, diplomacy, and discretion and tact side of things. But I tell you, I'm better than I used to be. And by the grace of God, with friends helping me out, I'm going to get better. And by the grace of God, with friends helping you out, you will get further on that path. And when you get together... Don't ever forget to pray. 
Don't forget that part. It's so important to include God in our everyday life. And that's what these four boys are doing. And they know how to react because God is in the middle of their lives, in the middle of this trial. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this example in the, in the Word, in your words. We look at these people in the Bible like Samuel and David and even Peter and John and all these guys, Boaz, and we say, wow, I could never be that person. And your answer to us is, yes, you can. All you have to do is start following me, and I will teach you. I thank you, Lord, for, for the different men that you've brought into my life that, that have taken me down that path, and I, I pray that you continue to provide that. I pray for, for this church, for the people that are sitting here. If, if there's somebody here who does not have that, that you provide that for them. That we get to a point where we go beyond just the high, how are you in the weather part, Lord that we start asking the question, what is God doing in your life? What is God telling you? You don't know how God speaks? Well, let me show you how God speaks. I thank you so much, Lord, for your active, uh, active spirit in my life and the life of, of those that are sitting here. And I pray that we respond to, to the Spirit when it's active in our life. I pray, Lord, that one day we look back and we say, wow, I am a Daniel now. I am a Naomi. I am a Ruth. Who else can I help down that path? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. May His face never turn from you. May He lead you down the path of righteousness. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.